everybody should be in a band. If you can't find a band, the government should appoint one for you. I've been saying this for years. It's in my book. It's a core belief that I hold. Being in a band can get you out of your own self-obsessive thoughts because you need to be in the moment. Being in a band connects you with other people without the burden of conversation. You are perfectly in the moment. And the self, that self that could be such a pain in the ass, that self recedes, at least kind of, and at least for a while. And then you're part of something greater than yourself. I think this is what some people get out of religion, this uh, membership in, in something higher. And I'm happy that they do. Most major religions won't let you cover your favorite Weezer song, though, even if you ask nicely, and probably not as part of the Sunday service. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. Gabe, I'm all worked up about music now, so can we let's drop in that thing. That's from the band Banana, which is mostly Chelsea Erson. Chelsea is a musician, primarily a bass player, and writer and podcaster based in Massachusetts. She's been making music, mostly in bands, since she was a teenager. Chelsea created the podcast Dear Young Rocker, where Chelsea in her 30s reads letters to her teenage self, the young rocker in the title. She explains what teenage Chelsea is going through, stuff that contemporary Chelsea now understands with the benefit of age and experience. Dear Young Rocker is Chelsea's statement of kindness, forgiveness, and love to her younger self, and it's a recognition of achievement to who she's become. It's pretty beautiful. Here's a little clip from Dear Young Rocker before the interview so you know what it sounds like. Dear Young Rocker, wow. I am so proud of you. Whenever you need to be brave again in the future, please remember the time you asked to try out for a band, even though you thought you were incapable of talking to other kids at school, and the time you played your first show and even sang and played at the same time in front of a real audience. Something plenty of people who've been playing bass for years can't even do. I know you're probably going to immediately start thinking about how you could do it better or what you should have worn instead, but please take as much time as you possibly can to just feel that happiness and pride in yourself. I asked Chelsea Erson who she was before she ever picked up a bass. I was a kid that was just completely locked in my own brain, and it felt like a prison. Mm. Describe what being locked means. It always felt like I had so, so many thoughts, ideas, stories, some of them interesting and creative and imaginative in a fun way, many of them imaginative and dark and scary. But I felt like there was always narration happening there were always layers to everything I looked at, and yet I couldn't express any of it to anyone around me. And then if an adult said, how are you, or expected me to say please and thank you, I would just kind of maybe grunt or hide behind something because I had so much up here I couldn't, in my brain, <laughs> I, I couldn't get it out. And then when I found music, I felt like, oh, I can get something out now. This is where it comes out. How old were you when that happened? Eleven. Eleven. What, what did you start with with music? The first rock instrument I received was an acoustic guitar that had been sitting around my grandpa's house. I believe I asked for an electric bass, and my parents thought, well, that sounds like a lot of a commitment uh, for us to spend, you know, $100 because you need an amp for an electric right. bass, too. Right. Your grandpa's got some guitars sitting around in the attic. <laughs> Let's just get you one of those. Put new strings on it. Was it a good guitar? Uh, it was really cool looking. It was like a 60s uh, harmony, probably from a Sears catalog that had like really interesting detailing on it. But it hurt my fingers so badly. The action was so high. I could barely press down on the strings. But I fought my way through it. And I think I got really good uh, finger strength from playing that thing. I bet. Did things start to 
to unlock in your brain when, when you started playing? Yeah, because I had listening to music had always felt like my thoughts that were everywhere and I couldn't control were suddenly locked onto something. They felt organized. When I listened to a song, my brain could follow the song and follow the rhythm and just experience that. And so then once I could participate in that song and play along, it just felt like I was like communicating with the band. You know, it felt like I was I was part of something for once and that what I was doing like made sense and yeah, felt good. It felt like me. Do you remember the first song that did that for you? I can't say, but I always want to lock onto something by the Smashing Pumpkins because even before I was at the age that I was buying my own CDs or anything like that, I, you know, I was in the backseat listening to the radio and as a 90s child, the Smashing Pumpkins were topping the charts, and I, I'm sure I experienced many of those songs. And I think probably the song Tonight, Tonight by them, it has such an emotional string component mm-hmm. that gets me every time. And I think as a super hypersensitive child, that song probably was having me crying in the backseat and trying not to show it. <laughs> and that Billy Corgan vocal, you could kind of put any emotion you want into even just (laughs) one of the notes that he holds for a while. Exactly. Yeah. Do you know now what the, the things you were dealing with as a kid would be diagnosed as, do you have an understanding of it more now? I feel like that changes still, even in my thirties. And One reason for that is I did not experience good care when I tried to first talk about it as a kid. First, the first time I tried to talk about it, it was kind of like, we don't talk about that. Um, I had a very stoic New England family. My parents were a little older, too, of a different generation. And both sides of their family had a lot of mental health that had absolutely never been dealt with. Besides the people who were bad enough, their health was poor enough, were put in an asylum, and everyone else had to get over it. (laughs) so I didn't bring it up and then I think the first time I got diagnosed I remember the nurse practitioner just opened her mouth when I she just looked at me with the exact expression I was worried I would get of like utter horror when I described what I now know to be OCD um, violent um, images that OCD can put in your brain And I described those and I described worrying about hurting myself or other people. And she just looked at me with this open mouth and then gave me like lithium and trazodone and said, I think, severe depression or something like that. And later, only a couple of years ago, I found out OCD, ADHD, depression, which I think comes from those two things. It can, yeah. And yeah, anxiety. But anxiety is the, the big, the bigger picture, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we would we would use the term intrusive thoughts as well, yeah. it sounds like, for right. what you're going through. And then how old were you when you were going through those really scary intrusive thoughts? I remember them as young as I can remember. Wow. Um, yeah, I remember being, I think it probably, as much as I hated to admit this when I was a younger person, I think it started around the time my parents divorced when I was five. And I remember like sleeping at my dad's new apartment for the first time and thinking I was going to die because I was convinced I was holding my breath every time I fell asleep. And then I remember having a kitten and having this image in my mind that I was going to hurt the kitten and being terrified, even though I loved animals and thinking I was like a monster. And I absolutely could not tell anyone because I was a girl. I was a little girl. Little girls can't feel violent there. That's that's crazy. So. Yeah, very young. So you didn't have any framework for what a mental disorder was or that there was anything. It was just, you just thought things are falling apart. Exactly. I thought I, and I couldn't tease out, you know, the difference between, especially as a kid, the difference between thoughts, emotions, and you. Um, It all just felt like me is, (laughs) me is bad feeling. It's all (laughs) one blob. It just is me. And like, I created these bad feelings and I am bad. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm doing it wrong. I'm yeah, I'm rotten from the inside. Yep. When the nurse practitioner was appalled, did things get recognized in your family? Did did treatment commence towards a better end? Did the family accept it? So, 
I told my parents, like, or I at least told my mom, because we were like, oh, we're not going to talk to your dad about this. But I told my mom, you know, this lady gave me a bunch of pills. I tried a couple of them, and I just felt horrible, nauseous, you know, like a zombie, whatever. Did not feel better in any way. I think I tried for two days or something, and my mom said, this is making you sick. And she flushed them all down the toilet. And she said, you just need to talk to someone. Like, she accepted that maybe I needed a therapist to sort things out. And then I saw a very Freudian therapist who did, who just wanted to analyze oh, my dreams about my mom and dad. <laughs> uh, and that didn't not help. extremely helpful, I imagine. That also just made me feel weird. And he, it's funny, he also tested me for ADHD, but the test... Now that I know more about it, the test was probably maybe works for five-year-olds, but was not for an 18-year-old. It was like, I'm going to say a few numbers in a row, and then you're going to say them back to me. And as people with ADHD know, if you are in a heightened state, you can, you can remember things and you can function very well. And I was yeah. really anxious about this. So I, I did the test with flying colors, and he said, no ADHD. We just need to keep talking about your parents. And I was like, I don't want to. <laughs> so I stopped seeing that guy too. I mean, it, it is classically good rock and roll fodder for, <laughs> for <laughs> the, oh, yeah. the painful, angsty uh, childhood. I mean, it sucks in real life really bad. But uh, when did you switch over to the bass then? And why did you pick up the bass? Yeah, I think I after I showed my parents that I'm going to stick with this playing a rock instrument thing I think I had probably played the guitar for like six months and they saw that every single day I was doing it I asked for a bass I can't remember if it was for my birthday or Christmas or what but I got a bass uh, as a present and I had just seen you know again Smashing Pumpkins I had seen Darcy Retsky up there with a bass and Melissa Aftermar and that's that's the place I had seen women looking badass, you know, like commanding. Because to me, I had a lot of problems being a girl as a kid and not, I'm not a transgender person, but I I just, as a person with social anxiety, you know, being female is pretty loaded. You get looked at a lot, especially as your body is developing and you still feel like a child and grown men are looking at it and it's, it's not fun. And so I was a, a hardcore tomboy and I, as a sensitive person, too, I hated that being a girl meant you were sensitive. I didn't want to be seen as sensitive. I wanted to be seen as tough and cool and badass. And so when I saw women with a bass who looked like they were, like, commanding the stage and playing these deep notes that would get people to headbang and, you know, I felt like they were, like, actually controlling the band, not actually the singer. I thought the bass was just, like, the coolest. T yeah, I thought it looked tough and cool, and I just loved how it the bass notes made me feel too. And I said, I want to do that. Yeah. I mean, a nice vibrating low bass note just goes all the way through you, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. It goes through, up through the feet, especially if you're at a big concert with big subwoofers, it's just full yeah. body. And then what did that do for the anxiety, the depression, the obsessive compulsiveness? Like, mm. like what effect did it have when, when that became your thing? It was a physical escape. My, my symptoms didn't bother me while I was playing. And so at school, when I just wanted to be invisible and die, like the whole school day, I just thought about going home and playing the bass. And eventually, you know, while playing, I would always imagine being in a band. And eventually I finally had a social goal. I had no idea how to talk to people at school because I didn't understand other girls. Like I said, girliness never appealed to me, so I felt like I don't know how to talk to another girl. I don't know about pocketbooks or whatever they talk about. But I knew about music now, and I said, okay, I can talk to other kids who play in bands. And luckily someone I had been in orchestra with, because I also played the cello, someone I had been in orchestra with started a band, basically like a Nirvana ripoff band, and he sat next to me in English class, and I was like, I'm going to ask to be in this band. And they happened to one day start talking about how they need a bass player for the band. So the fates aligned and this moment was 30 seconds. It lasted about seven years to me. I just knew I had to say, like, I am so shy. I will never 
have this perfect of an opportunity ever again. I have to say, can I be in the band? And I said, like, can I try? And they're like, (laughs) what? Did a fly just buzz by or something? And then I was like, can I try out for the band? And they're like, yeah, do it. And what what year was that? When How old were you in that? That was ninth grade, so I was 15, 14. Okay. Yeah. And did that did that take you through high school, same band? Mostly. I mean, of course, so I was the only girl I knew of in the very large high school that played rock music. So everyone in my band was was a dude, and they all fell in love with me, of course. Of course. And because, you know, we're spending a lot of time right next to each other, sweating it out. Um, mm. And I can't say it was reciprocated, but it became apparent with the emotions of teenage boys that if I didn't appease one of them, they were going to all fight each other to the death over me. So I agreed to date someone. Um, although I was never asked out, I just suddenly was the drummer's girlfriend. And then, then the guitarist and the drummer hated each other over that. And then I dated the guitarist and then the drummer had to get kicked out. And then I got a new drummer and then I dated the new drummer. And so at the end, by the end of high school, I had no friends because of all the breakups, which were just me being like, Hey, you know what? I decided I don't want to date someone I don't actually like. And then of course, setting boundaries, uh, turned me into a friendless loser yeah did that extend beyond the band as well like you were just known as that you know the the one who kept breaking up the band kept getting guys mad I have no idea what other people thought I know I remember when I dated both of those people neither of them were seen as like cool good-looking guys whatever and I got a lot I got the popular kids would be like you're dating what's his face because I didn't know that I I was cute, uh-huh. so I thought that was just, like, who I had to date, and so the popular guys would, like, kind of pick on me, and I realized now they were probably trying to flirt with me, um, but it just made me feel worse. I was like, great, now everyone thinks I'm gross, and I just date gross people, and I don't know. I don't know what people actually thought of me, but I think now, looking back with, like, a kinder eye toward my younger self... People probably thought I was cool. I was the only girl in a band that played shows. And, you know, people went to them. Popular kids went to these shows sometimes. And maybe I actually just seemed like an aloof, like, yeah. icy cool yeah. girl. You were the I Tina Weymouth of the high school. Right. <laughs> More with Chelsea Urson in a moment. Back with Chelsea Urson from Dear Young Rocker. We talk about on the show about people misunderstanding how depression and anxiety work and thinking that mm. it comes from a reason, like, you know, that it's mm-hmm. the same as being sad about something, which it's not. Right. And it seems like you had everything in place to to really kick ass. Like you're you're in a band and you're you have that image that you would look to all these other women as as having like you would seem to kind of have it all in place did you think oh okay I shouldn't be screwed up anymore if I've got all this did that cause some problems oh god yeah I mean I think there's so much shame and guilt that comes with you know especially the beginning of like mental illness and as a teenager yeah I felt I knew I was whatever different let's say and I felt horrible about that. I thought, yeah, I'm in a band like, okay, my parents are divorced. Half the kids in the school, parents are divorced. I have food on the table. I don't, you know, we're not poor. Like, what do I have to be depressed about? Or, like, I knew I, depression was the only word I had at the time. I was like, what do I have to feel this way about? You stupid person, you need to get over it. So, and that, you know, I got that feedback from my parents, too. My mom would say, like, you just need to smile more. You you need just to have confidence. And then, and I tried real hard to have confidence and it didn't didn't happen. Yeah. So you you go through high school and and people play music and then stick with it for Mm -hmm. all kinds of reasons. There's all sorts of reasons why people are in bands, why people 
you know, keep playing music. What about you? Why did you stay with it? It was still the only thing that made me feel okay. Um, And I think that's still to this day. Sometimes I still forget that and I'll be in a dark place and I'll be like, my brain wants to tell me, oh, putting on a song won't change anything. Picking up a guitar won't change anything. And I'm like, okay, brain, shut up. And I put on a song and I pick up a guitar and I play along and amazing the feeling, even if after the song I'm back to wherever, you know, during that moment, I'll still just love every second of it. So that's, that's part of what it is, is I just feel like in life a lot of times, like, I don't know if I, I like being me, but I always like being me when I'm playing music. I mean, most people aren't in bands. Everybody should be in a band, but most people aren't. Talk a little bit about that pocket when you're playing that song. Mm -hmm. Is it, Mm -hmm. is it a, a respite? Like, is it a vacation from your normal self or is it a higher level of your normal self? Like, like who are you in those moments? It can be both. I mean, if I'm, like I said, if I'm sitting down on the couch and I'm just like, I put on, let's say like a Iggy Pop song and I just bash on the guitar to it, that's a respite. But if I, if I jam with people and I love leading jams and because I love just like doing something weird on the bass and trying something new, then my brain, I honestly feel parts of my brain like clicking over and new like neurons connecting to each other in a way I, I don't feel otherwise. And sometimes I feel that way. I'm also a writer and sometimes I feel that way when I'm, I'm writing too and I get kind of like high on an idea. But that's another thing depression can or anxiety or OCD or ADHD, whatever it is at the moment, can suck away from me and say that like, oh, that's going to be really hard. Like coming up with something new is hard. I don't know if we can do that. But if I force myself to do it, I just start noodling. Yeah, that's I don't I don't even have words for it, (laughs) but it feels like a higher something, like you said. Yeah. So much of anxiety and depression are this future and past kind of problem, like oh, depression's God, yeah. dragging you back to the past, anxieties uh-huh. making you worry about the future. But if you're yep. if you're zoned in on a song that you're playing, mm-hmm. you're kind of in that in the moment, like like it's that state that you're trying so hard to achieve but never can. Absolutely, and that's that's a good reminder that it is a form of meditation. Sometimes I like to chide myself, I don't meditate or try hard enough to meditate. But if I sit down and noodle on a guitar and zone out, like that is meditating. You know, yeah. that, that puts me in that, in that absolute moment. I like the idea that you need to try harder to meditate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know that guilt that like, oh, I'd have all my symptoms under control if I just woke up at 5 a.m. and meditated and then exercised for two hours and then ate a perfect diet and then took all the right supplements and... If I only could just make myself do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've I've thought about writing a book whose title is "If I Could Only Just," and then just, mm. and then just because everybody fills that in with something else, and it's uh, you know, it'll make you what I believe the the mental health term is crazy. It'll make you in, yes, in fact crazy. As you went into adulthood, as you went into to college and into the world and away from from your family, did the way music affected your mental health change? I it's interesting. So college was a strange time. I kind of call it the time when there was no rock because after the high school band fell apart, I got into college and again I started with, you know, no friends, of course. I didn't know anyone from high school that went to my school, and I didn't, this time I wasn't lucky enough to happen to bump into people who had the same taste in music with me and needed a bass player. So I brought my bass to school, but I was a music major. I psyched myself out because I failed a class and decided I wasn't capable of uh, finishing a music major. So then I wasn't around musicians anymore. And then I, I, music had, it felt like music had broken my heart in a way because I had loved this thing so much and it felt like trying to go with it had just betrayed me and made me worse off. And I said, you know what, maybe I should just work on this degree to try to get a regular boring job and be an adult professional woman in a professional career. 
and I can still listen to music for fun, but I don't need to focus on this band thing. And guess what? (laughs) When I abandoned music, my mental health got to the lowest point I've absolutely ever been in my life. And interestingly enough, my thyroid also crashed right at that time, and I don't think there's a coincidence there. Yeah. But, you know, I, I couldn't sleep. I whatever, stopped going to classes pretty much entirely. I started dating some guy who ended up in jail. I was going to say should be in jail. Not not a good guy who was very coercive again and with no self-esteem. I just went with that and ended up in a sort of a cult type situation because they promised me, oh, you'll start feeling physically better. You'll be happy. You'll connect with other people. You just have to do this one class. Okay, you did this one class. Now we need 250 bucks a month to keep doing the classes. Oh, now you need to pay $5,000 to do this workshop. And if you don't do it, you're going to go back to being depressed. So you better do it because then you'll have a perfect life and reach enlightenment. And next thing I knew, I was totally sucked in. I stole money from my parents. And I am like, I was the most perfect you know, behaviorally whatever child who was quiet, and I would have never thought of doing that. But I took money from my parents and paid to do these workshops, and they wanted me to go, like, meet the leader of this thing, and they wanted to take me to New York, and they said, don't tell your parents you're going, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so this is what I had replaced music with, because in this cult thing, they played music all the time and they had you meditate and talk to your inner child and your younger self and connect with yourself and say, I love you. So they like it was the first time I had ever heard about self-acceptance or self-love. And I just was and they were playing this emotional violin music the whole time you're doing this while you're also dehydrated so that you are just ready to hallucinate. And I thought I had been like saved or something. And so I was like, here's here's every dollar I have. And I came very close to going to New York with them and then finally just Googled, like, is this a cult? Found the articles about all the lawsuits and got out of there. But that that's what happened when I tried to get rid of playing music. And I never tried that again. Yeah. Was, how old were you when that was happening? Around 2021. 20, wow. God, it almost seems like like there's this force that with music you can get it out of you you can you can exercise this stuff or kind of pump it out into the world and then denied that Mm -hmm. it just turned on you and started consuming the host right like all this all this energy just was directed toward an implosion exactly yeah 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 More with Chelsea Erson coming up. Prepare yourself for the greatest pro wrestling podcast spectacular known as Tights and Fights. A backdropping audio showcase that helps you understand the world of pro wrestling with a lot of love and no toxic masculinity. Featuring host Danielle Radford. Time to kick butt and chew gum, and I'm all out of butts. Lindsay Cow. I'm a brutal Brit, and my fists were made to punch and hit. And Hal Lublin. I was doing the voiceover this whole time. Hear us talk about pro wrestling's greatest triumphs and failures. And make fun of its weekly absurdities. On the Perfect Wrestling Podcast. Tights and Fights. Every Saturday, Saturday, Saturday on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man, sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks. Every week, myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes, and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. 
Yo, what's that show called again? Hate Rocks Deep Dives into Hot Records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Back again with Chelsea Erson. Why is the music scene so sexist and full of creeps? Because the world is. <laughs> are they are they laid more bare and obvious in music though? Yeah, because I mean men had such a monopoly at least publicly on rock music for so long that you know, it was always a thing like a guy could pick up a guitar and then the girls would like him, right? So then when a girl picks up a guitar, uh-oh, she gets a little bit of power. He would, you know, the guys were supposed to be the ones with the power to rock and then have the girls fawn over them. And so I thought about this a lot. So I think, you know, in an episode of my podcast recently, I had a a writer, a guest memoirist write that she found out in high school that boys get very upset if a girl picks up a guitar and doesn't ask them for advice on how to play it, if she's like, I'm just going to bash on this thing. And you'll see that in comments on, you know, social media posts. I follow just like hashtag musician. And sometimes, you know, like the other day, a a video of a, a woman playing a guitar came up. And yeah, she wasn't the world's best guitarist, but I think it was like a talent show or something. She was just like, okay, yeah, I can play the guitar. And all these comments from these guys, like, disgusting just like if you're gonna play that guitar you better learn your whatever skills and you better tune it right and uh learn how to set your amp settings and they're so upset it's like she didn't say i'm the world's best guitarist this video is not framed in that way at all but just for the fact that she's a woman playing a guitar like if a guy just picked up a guitar and crappily played no one would care they wouldn't comment on it they'd be like okay the guy sucks so there's just something so threatening to them about it and I think they know that we just look cooler doing it. Sorry. <laughs> like, I I think women just look cooler playing music. So I think that's what it is. I, yeah. I, I find that hard to dispute now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> How did Dear Young Rocker come about? So Dear Young Rocker is a crazy process, a long process. So... Okay, so in grad school, I started feeling very angry about my teenage years, and I didn't know why. And I knew I needed to write about playing music. And I was really driven to write about playing music because I hadn't played in so many years. And funny thing, I had never heard of Riot Girl, Even though I loved Nirvana in high school, I actually didn't listen to Hole in high school because I was just told Courtney Love is just an idiot who uh, killed Kurt Cobain, whatever. Mm. Her band is worthless. Kurt wrote all the songs anyway. Can you quickly define Riot Girl for people who have not yet heard of it? Yeah. So Riot Girl was a movement in the early 90s that started very DIY, very local, mostly in the Pacific Northwest of mostly from teenage girls who are interested in rock music and who are upset that the punk scene was so sexist. As much as it still is today, it was a hell of a lot worse. A girl would go to a show and get spit on or punched if she tried to get near the stage. And it would be, you know, written off as, oh, that's just uh, the mosh pit. It's nothing against girls or whatever. But it was very, very blatantly sexist. And so they started distributing zines amongst each other that were just kind of like, let's take the power back from the boys. Let's play in bands and not even know how to play guitar, just like the original punks did in the 70s. And that will be radical. It will piss the boys off if we just play three chords and don't tune the guitars and, and scream, you know, whatever. And they started all these really cool bands. I mean, Bikini Kill is the one that has the most notoriety and Bratmobile and Heavens to Betsy. And there were tons and tons of others. And Hole came a little later in that. But, yeah, and it came with an aesthetic of, like, ripped tights and, you know, feminine clothing that had been distorted in some way and kind of, like, taking the male gaze and shifting it. So putting on lipstick but putting it kind of, like, all over your face or dressing childish because that's supposed to be sexy but like messing with it Mm -hmm. and so they were taking the power back but it kind of it got turned into this girl power thing in the 90s that was like very spice girls commercial just like girls can do anything boys can do and it wasn't really and it was very white and it wasn't radical anymore and that's all, all i heard about it i i didn't know about 
the origins of it. But then, but then you then rediscover out, it. Yeah. And then so in my, you know, early mid-20s, I found like an anthology in a bookstore of Riot Girl zines. And I started listening to these bands and I loved their just raw power. And I think if I had discovered them as a kid, I wouldn't have liked it because I would have said, oh, I always felt like I had to be the best bass player in the world to prove myself so that I wouldn't be seen as a girl player, like good for a girl, whatever. So to see, I think I would have seen girls playing sloppily and been like, oh, man, they're, like, doing us a disservice. But then as an older person, I, I like, really got it because I was, I was, I had finally been radicalized. I had taken, like, a feminist theory class. And I had, in that class, I had had this epiphany where I was, like, I had always told myself, me being female has nothing to do with me playing the bass. Like, there's never been any, anything intersecting or weird there. And then I went, oh, yeah, has a ton to do with it. The reason my whole high school band got messed up was because I was a girl and I didn't get seen as just a bass player. I got seen as a piece of meat and that kind of ruined things. That made it a lot harder. And that's why I never felt like I was good enough at the bass. If I messed up one note in practice, I felt like an idiot, you know. And then I said, that pisses me off. There's probably so many kids out there today who are afraid to pick up a guitar because they don't want to look like a dumb girl who can't play. They're afraid to look like beginners. Or, you know, non-binary kids, trans kids, kids of, you know, different colors and ethnicities. Basically, if you're not a white male, you're going to get worried that people are going to scrutinize your playing. And because they do. And so I said, I want to write a story about what happened to me and also send letters from my adult self to my teen self and tell her, this is what you're going through. This is mental illness. You're not just a broken, quote unquote, crazy person. And you actually are pretty badass and you're actually much better at the base than the boys are ever going to tell you. You're actually very good and they will absolutely not reveal that information to you. And you can really do do anything. But I understand why you have no self-esteem. Don't beat yourself up for having no self-esteem. You were raised in a strange, repressed way. And that's why... You don't know how to express yourself, and it's okay. So it became this, this letter, these letters from my younger self to my older self and my current self to my younger self. It's wonderful writing, and it's, it's really powerful writing, and it's proven very popular. Do you think young people are listening to it? Like, it's a letter to your younger self, but yeah. it's getting picked up on by younger people like your younger self, presently <laughs> young, I should say. Yeah. And it's funny. I do. I got an iTunes review the other day that said, your podcast has helped me with my middle school issues. And my heart just like melted. That's so beautiful. So I've gotten a few teens and tweens who've written to me. But I mostly actually get um, millennial, other millennial women who said, you know, I also was a tomboy or an awkward introvert in the early 2000s when everyone wanted to look like Paris Hilton with low-rise jeans and it was tough for me as a person who wanted to be like cool like a rocker or whatever or felt like they had similar mental health issues and you know even much older men uh, write to me who have daughters and they say like wow it's crazy how like I I felt that way in high school but I never thought that my daughter would feel the exact same way And I felt that way about music and I had those same because I write openly about my aggressive feelings and wanting to punch things and break things and whatever. And so many men say I had no idea women and girls had these feelings, too, as teenagers. And I write back and I'm like, yep, we all have hormones. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, we all we all go through it. Girls just aren't allowed to show it. And that's why every girl should be in a band. So you can get that out in a productive way. So, yeah, I got. People of all ages either finding their own self-acceptance for their younger selves, and some young people are going through it now. I think a lot of young men might not want to even know how powerful young women are because, like, if I even ask, then I'm going to be destroyed. <laughs> like, <it's gonna, laughs> like, they're probably suspect just how quickly they can be destroyed, and they don't, they don't want to even go there. It's... And that's yeah. that's why society got built the way it did, unfortunately. Yeah, and they're lucky that girls are trained to not know they're powerful, that we're oh, trained man. to 
only see the flaws in ourselves, only see the physical things wrong with us, the things in our clothes that aren't cool enough. You know, what about us isn't pretty enough? And that keeps us down. It occurs to me just now that the musicians who tend to scream the loudest, get the most attention for screaming, get the most attention for being angry and furious are part of the demographic group who has the least to be angry and furious and raging about. (laughs) Like, it's, it's the white guys who get heard the most and they have the least to complain about. Right, yeah. And, you know... I love a lot of music that came from white guys. I love sure. their riffs, but for me, the message is way more powerful from a person who's who's been marginalized and who's been oppressed, just like, you know, the original, let's say, British 70s punk was working class guys talking about being trodden on by the government. Yeah, they had something to fight about and scream about, but middle class to upper class teenage boys who have everything they want i don't really care what they're screaming about people who've who've been through some crap and been crapped on by society that's interesting no matter what their music sounds like you know the organization you're involved with girls rock yeah you help out at these camps what are what happens there what are those define those oh they're really cool so that we always call it a bubble because in this space, um, first of all, everyone there is either, you know, identifies as a woman or trans, as well as all the campers. And for a week, all, you know, we're all together, like, all day into the night. And kids are brought in who, some of them have played music before, some of them have never touched a guitar or a bass or drums or a microphone. And they're just given free reign to make whatever noises they feel like for the first time. Instead of, this is music class, uh, we're all going to touch the A key at the same time. It's like, bash on that guitar, play the weird, like, I'll show you what an A chord is, but if you want to play it completely weird, go for it. Whatever you like. And make as much noise as you want, and we're not going to tell you that's a mistake or do it better. Um, If you want to practice, that's great, but no one's enforcing that. And it's just, like, super supportive of, like, we say, no, there's no wrong note. There's no wrong chord. There's, you know, you can't scream the wrong way, whatever. Except, well, you can hurt your voice, but it's a, it's okay if you sing out of tune. You know what I mean? The, so these kids are put in bands, and at the end of the week, they have an original song, and they perform it at a real, like, rock venue in front of 100, 200 people. Um, and they get to experience a crowd cheering for them and egging them on to just be themselves. They can wear, like, whatever they want to wear. And it's the first time a lot of these kids have this freedom. And at the beginning of the week, they don't know what to do with it. They're kind of like, they want to know, a lot of them want to know what the rules are. And then at the end of the week, they're just letting loose and they're just running all over the place and sticking out their tongues on stage and being total rock stars and it's it's a beautiful thing i think you've you've changed a lot of lives with the the work you're doing there how has it changed you oh it changed me so much so i did not so you know in my high school band i was just i was the bass player and i sang i sang a couple of the songs but i never really thought of myself as the leader but after i did girls rock camp the first time and i saw eight-year-olds picking up a guitar and writing songs and performing them and being band leaders, I said, oh, I can write a song and be a band leader? Like, what the heck? I always thought, oh, I don't have training in composition. Like, I don't know how to structure a song. And then I realized, you just play a few notes. It's a song. You say some words. You decide what what's a song. And so then I, yeah, started writing my own songs and started my own band as a band leader after that. And that band is Banana. Banana, yes. Tell me about Banana. So Banana started with me in that angry, wanting to listen to loud music phase. And I still really loved, uh, the Pixies is another one of my biggest favorite bands. And so I wanted to like go even further with the like loud, quiet, loud thing. So I wanted like really metal riffs and then like kind of play on type, like have people see me as a girl who... I have been told before they expect me to play something quiet and delicate and get up on stage and start with something quiet and delicate and like launch into metal riffs and then 
go back and forth and like play with that. And so that's kind of the idea I had for Banana. And I, I called it like grunge pop, but like pop metal or something. And it was really fun. And I was a two piece for a long time. I played, a, I actually played a six string bass that I would play chords on. So it was like disgustingly heavy. It was so deep because <laughs> I would like down tune that thing. And uh, then eventually I got a guitar player and a, a steady drummer. Yeah. So now it's out. a three. Yeah, it's three. And I put out like three albums. But I think during the pandemic, I kind of decided I want to go back to being solo because I, I don't know what I want to do next. I feel like I've written enough alternative rock songs. I want to do something a little maybe weirder. I don't know. How's your mental health today, especially compared to the when you were a young rocker? Uh, Not that you're an old rocker now. <laughs> it's so much better just being aware of what's going on. Oh, my goodness. Like, if I'm having, if I feel that drop in my stomach and I can say to myself, my serotonin is super low. Did I eat? Did I have a drink last night? Did I do something that increased my serotonin briefly, like hang out with a bunch of friends, and then now it's like, you know, I'm in withdrawal, whatever. So I can do those things. And then I can, if I have an intrusive thought, even if it still makes me feel horrible and I do my compulsions, mm. I know what it is. And I don't judge myself for having that thought. I'm like, I think of all the other people out there with OCD going through it right now. And I'm like, here we all are turning that doorknob a hundred yeah. million times or whatever I'm doing at the moment. Is there still anger in your music? Oh, was there yeah. anger in your music before? There was. Oh, my God. Especially Banana. Banana has a lot of lyrics about, uh, let's say, unfair relationships uh. <laughs> and unfair situations. And it has a lot of lyrics about mental health, too. And I, I exercise my demons there. And I haven't, I haven't written a song in a while. And I feel weird about it. And I'm trying not to be hard on myself about that. It will happen when it happens. But I have different problems than I did when I, uh, you know, I'm a stable relationship now. So I've not, I don't have that to write about anymore. But I know there's something tickling me in my brain that's like, we need to get this out and I need to sit down and figure out what that is. So when I petitioned the Biden administration for a, a federal program that can assign anybody a band, oh. you're a co-sponsor on this bill. I can count on your support. Oh, absolutely. I have seen I have seen so many like 50, 60-year-old women who never thought they could touch an instrument mm -hmm. and 8-year-old kids uh, light up and have this absolutely change their lives. So I think this is an extremely important bill. Yes. <laughs> the senator from, from Massachusetts has endorsed it. You can learn more about Dear Young Rocker in the show notes for this episode at our website, MaximumFun.org slash DepressionMode, or you could just go to DearYoungRocker.com. Maybe we all need to find our own rock and roll, that pursuit, that mental and physical activity, that thing that is more than a hobby, but is more of an experience that lifts us to a transcendent space beyond ourselves, beyond the anxiety of the day-to-day. -day. Something with that sound that can drown out the nagging voices from within yourself. And maybe your rock and roll is something else that isn't rock and roll, but still serves those functions. Or maybe your rock and roll is rock and roll. I still maintain that everybody should be in a band. You should be. Practice is at eight. Bring your gear. We're going to rock. Next time on Depression Mode, our rock and roll summer continues. When A.C. Newman of The New Pornographers was hitting a personal low, he wrote about it in a song for everyone to hear because he can't not do that. I feel like I'll always be like writing songs in my brain until I die. It might be my last thought in this world will be, uh, you know, some melody going around in my head. And I know that that must be me trying to deal. A.C. Newman on the next Depression Mode. If people support our show through a small donation, we continue to exist. If not, we don't. If you donate, you make Depression Mode happen. And thank you. If you haven't donated yet, it's so easy. 
You can find a level that works for you. Just go to MaximumFun.org join. Also, give our sponsors a shot. Use those discount codes that they offer that you hear me mention in the breaks because that stuff is tracked. And then you're getting good stuff, you're getting it cheaper, and you're helping our show. We love it when you recommend Depression Mode to friends and something that matters a lot. Hit subscribe, give us five stars, write reviews if you can. That helps more people find out about what we're doing. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text HOME to 741741. Let me know who you want me to interview, what issues you want to hear more about in mental health. We want your requests. You can email us. Our electric mail address is depreshmode at maximumfun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Great talk going on over there. A lot of people supporting each other, collaborating on new episode ideas. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepreshPod. Our Depresh Mode newsletter is available on Substack. I'm on Twitter at John Moe, all one word, same on Instagram. Hello, Credits listeners. Let's welcome Seattle's brand new NHL hockey team, the Kraken. That is their name. I don't know if that makes each player a Kraken or if each player forms a component of a single Kraken. And if a player is released, is that releasing the Kraken? I've been thinking about this a lot. I haven't been sleeping well. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. The Swish. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now. Building wings on the way down. I am figuring things out. Building wings, building wings, building wings. No one knows the reason. Maybe there's no reason. I just keep believing. No one knows the answer. Maybe there's no answer. I just keep on dancing. Hey, hi, hello. This is Kyle Live from the internet. Tomorrow always has a chance at being better than today. And that chance is always worth taking. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.